Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. I know we're back and we've got a semi-schedule. Now, part of that is because we've got, you know, time at home to record these things. So I'm in the middle of a crazy mad rush where basically every single day for five days straight, I am recording an episode of this just so we can make sure that we have plenty of content for you guys. There might be times that you have two episodes in a week. We might just try to, you know, stretch it for as far as we can go and have an episode every single week for, you know, the end of time. Because if none of you saw the news by the time this is coming out, Literally minutes before we started recording this, a whole bunch of movies that were set to come out in July, which was when theaters were supposedly going to reopen, all decided, you know what, 2021's looking really great by now. So talking about these older movies is great. Now, if you're listening to this for the first time because of the guests that we'll get to in a minute, this show is explained very, very simply. This is a podcast celebrating horror movies, celebrating anniversaries. Now, we don't go for any of that weird off stuff doing 17 years, doing 42 years. No, no, no. We stick hard and fast with the big milestones, the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. And that's because at basically any point in time, there's a horror movie that deserves to be, you know, risen up. Sometimes it's going to be those classic, like when you're covering The Thing or when we did The Blob 88 a couple of years ago. And maybe they're films that you don't necessarily, you know, have heard of. Just a couple of weeks ago, we ended up doing an episode on Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2. So there is no depth that we will not plumb when it comes to the film that a guest wants to talk about. And lots of these films, when you look back at them, some of them age even better than you thought over time. Which, of course, brings us to the film that we're talking about tonight. A film that came out just a handful of years ago, and we're talking about Piranha 3D. Now, when you say Piranha 3D to people, they might be thrown off a little bit. And that's because it's a film that it's kind of in a weird place. And the reason I say it's a weird place is they specifically made sure not to do screenings of this film because they were worried about how critics were going to receive it. But then it came out and it was received well. Speaking of which, this film is in just probably one of the weirdest franchises you can think of. Now, of course, a couple years back, if you go back, we did the original Piranha that was directed by Joe Dante, and we had the wonderful Emily Don talking about that film. And so this is kind of a companion piece about that. And what I think is great in a way is... Okay, you're not going to hear many times where people are getting really excited talking about Piranha 3D, but that that threw me off. But the person that we have on today, I am so excited to have on the show, and they are somebody who's going to talk your ear off about Piranha 3D. Now, you might not know this individual, but there's a chance you've seen this individual's names. If you have gone to a theater, probably in the last handful of years, there's been at least one trailer every handful of months that has their name up on it. Now, the reason you might not directly know their name is because every time you see that name up there, they're attributed to a different website. I'll let them go off to, you know, tell you where they're from, but... This is probably one of the hardest working individuals when it comes to the world of film criticism. And I'm so glad to have Mr. Matt Donato on the show today. So welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for gushing for me. So I don't even have to do that much right now and tell about myself because, yeah, I, I, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to talk about Piranha 3D, a very weird movie, as you have said, in, in the realm of the franchise, in the realm of everything that it represents. And maybe some might think it's outdated. I think it's actually brilliant in the way that it does some tropes. But we'll get into that stuff later. 
Now, like like I said, I wanted to set it up for you kids. You're somebody who writes many different places, but just let people know a couple different places where they can find your writing out on the Internet. Absolutely. At the time, you can find me at such places as Slash Film, Bloody Disgusting, uh, Collider every now and then, Dread Central, a little bit of We Got This Covered for just film reviews, some flickering myth, and a lot of other places, Fangoria Pages. As Adrian already said, wherever anyone will open their doors (laughs) to me, I will write there. If there is a film that can be covered and potentially a film that other people have not thought about covering – Matt Donato is there out in the world taking a moment and, and taking a shot for everyone else and saying, I got this one. Apocalypse, that's my jam right there. <laughs> Movies like that, things you've never heard of. I promise I've got 20,000 of those reviews already written that you don't even know about. I will never forget the first time that I actually met you at Fantastic Fest a couple of years ago um, and was talking about Christmas horror because when I read the list that you made years ago, I knew most of the titles and you were surprised that I actually had seen most of those films before reading the list. I was surprised and worried because no sane individual should have seen that many Christmas horror films without having a reason. At least I was putting a list together and I had a podcast about it for a little bit, but <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to know why you've seen those movies. So I, we might have to move on from that subject because I don't know yeah, if I want to hear your reasoning. <laughs> very, very quickly. Now, for those of you who've come and to listen to the show, because Matt's on here, I don't blame you. That's, that's totally fine. The numbers help me. So I'm good with it. Um, The way this is set up is it's very, 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 very easy. This is, as Matt said, it's a gush session, both about this film and about the person who's talking about the film. We want the focus to be on them. So to make that as easy as possible, I have five questions that I ask every single person who comes onto the show. Where the conversation goes from that, it can go all over the place. It can get into the filmmaking side. It can get on a tangent about talking about five other movies. You never know where it's going to go, but we kind of keep it open-ended so we can really get to what the core is. Now, a couple of the questions, I'm going to change the wording of them kind of for the safety of the episode because there's at least one question that when I've asked it the last couple of times, things have gone off the rails and not necessarily in the safest way possible. But we always like to start by asking this, the simplest question, which is, do you remember the first time you saw Piranha 3D? The first time I saw Piranha 3D, I want to say it was in my basement. No, that was Piranha 3 Double D. I definitely saw Piranha opening night with my friends, probably about in high school. And we were the horror fans that every Thursday night at midnight, we were going to see whatever was premiering. <laughs> so it happened to be Piranha 3D at that week, whatever week it released. And yeah, we had a bloody good time with it at midnight. I, I think that's the best word to describe this movie is uh, boobs and blood. All the bees. This one covers the bees every anything you can think of. It's bonkers. <laughs> it's bloody. It's bodacious. You got boobs. It works. It works. It, and it's also a film where uh, to both uh, terrify people from seeing the movie, but also let them know the tone of the film is to say that Eli Roth acts in the film. And acting is in quotation marks because I'm not <laughs> convinced that's just not who he is. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure either. Well, like one of my favorite things, like trying to find out uh, like information about the film was that he, I guess, like fainted or got sick and had to go to the hospital one day. And they asked him if he'd just been out in the sun for a long time. And he's like, no, I think it's just the sunblock that I put on and was sweating. So the 
like the people who worked on the film changed his sunblock the next day and he was okay. But they made it sound like he was on set for like a couple days when he's got like maybe five minutes of screen time. The only thing I'll say is maybe they had to do like the practical effects with him there for because obviously we know what happens to him in the film. And again, yes, we'll get yes. there in case there's spoilers, but we won't say it. But uh, I, that's the only way because, yeah, he's just the wet T-shirt guy. He's just there to spray girls with T-shirts and make them wet. That's it. It makes sense. Now, when you saw that movie for the first time, did, did it grab hold of you? Were you a fan from basically moment one? Oh, moment one. There was no hesitation because, number one, I'm a big supporter of aquatic horror films. So you throw anything at me that's in the same same vein as something like Anaconda or Deep Blue Sea, stuff of that nature. I like it if it's serious. I like it more if it doesn't take itself serious and it has a lot of fun with the creature effects and the aqua horror levels of it. And that's what Piranha does. Uh, Piranha 3D, if we're calling it by the actual name. So I was smitten... At the first time I dove in the water, I was I was totally in love with it. Plus, I'm a gore guy 100%. And when you got Greg Nicotero doing the special effects, and let's just say this is, uh, yeah, this is a showcase for what he does. It was so weird to hear that the film, uh, that the MPAA didn't demand any cuts on the film. Nope, none. And which I'm sure we'll discuss <laughs> when we get to the scene. But, but just, just, yeah. It, like watching it in general, even with it being 10 years ago, you're just like, wow, that's like the passage of time. A movie like this, that even if it came out in like the, the eighties or early nineties would have been those films that people, you know, were coveting trying to find an uncut version of the movie. Cause the MPA would have just slashed it to ribbons back then. I mean, it's right up there with, and I, I mean what I'm about to say, it's right up there with, basically saving private Ryan on the beachfront scene. Yes. It's just as gory and gross and crazy. And, you know, we've all seen saving private Ryan and that movie leaves such an effect with that opening number that is just so hard to stomach because this is so violent and so tragic. And then you have Piranha 3d that it's not (laughs) tragic or anything by any means because it's throwing the comedy aspect at you and it's over the top and piranhas, but it is just as stick in your mind. It's crazy how they can do that. And it's a movie that would most people think of it, they, they think of it not doing very well at the box office. And while the budget was around $24 million, the whole worldwide gross for the movie was around $83, 84000000 million. Which is perfectly fine for a horror film. I mean, we, we cover horror all the time and we know the returns and the dividends on that kind of stuff. So, I mean, even if you add another, uh, what, $10 million for marketing, let's say they might have done that, but subtract the money they they would have spent on screenings because yeah they didn't screen this for critics they didn't have to pay out all the rental fees they're still turning a profit here and it's still yeah sure maybe the conjuring universe is breaking barrier or you know breaking records all the time but 84 million take on a movie like piranha that, that that's all gravy I think everybody's going to say yes to it any day of the week. Now, I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to put this in your court to see if you know, because I, don't, I know I'm going to butcher it, but how do you, Matt, pronounce the director's name? I, it is Alexandre Aha, right? See, that's what I thought, but I wasn't... Is it Aja or Aha? I mean... I, I, I thought it was Aha, but I heard other people say Aja, so I don't... I I'm know. sure it probably is. I'm sure I'm probably just pronouncing it incorrectly. Incorrectly, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I mean, okay. Mr. So. A will go with. <laughs> Mr. A, yeah, we'll go with the illustrious Mr. A. We'll call him that. But you were talking about aquatic horror, and before we dive into this movie itself, I do have to ask, how did you feel about Crawl? I adored Crawl. I, I think Crawl is fantastic. I think Crawl gets right back to that aquatic horror happy zone, I want to call it, where 
it's thrilling it's intense it still has jump scares and the horror elements are not lost on it and i think that can happen sometimes where a movie like piranha goes for the comedic you're not really getting the scary bits but it's gory and gruesome and it's over the top in those levels but you don't get a real good scare jump that often where with crawl it's almost like a trap in kind of haunted house movie with these freaking crocs because they jump out of nowhere you don't see them coming the camera work is really focused and it's really tight in on characters so you don't really see things in the background at all times so i i adored crawl i had fun with it but i also was jumping out of my seat I, and it's interesting because you don't really get lots of directors who who kind of have a chance to do something like that. I mean, aquatic horror is still, you know, very much a niche genre. You you have lots of people who completely support it and trump it up. And even earlier today, um, depending upon when this drops, the movie might be out on VOD. So definitely check it out. But I mentioned to somebody, uh, Sea Fever, uh, that w- played uh, Fantastic Fest in a couple different festivals that that I really enjoyed because anytime there's aquatic horror, I'm going to give it a chance. And lots of times they might be kind of lower rung VOD, like ones that sci-fi channel was like, sorry, we're not going to take a chance on this. But when you get that theatrical one, it's special. So the fact that you had Mr. A be able to direct a two big horror aquatic horror films in a span of 10 years is pretty cool. Yeah, and I'm really happy you mentioned Sea Fever, too, because I, I like that a lot at a Fantastic Fest as well. And it's going to be so crazy relevant these days because that gets into the uh, outbreak horror. It gets yep. into the more of the, uh, I guess we can call it contagion in the way it spreads. But once again, that Sea Fever doesn't dive right into the horror elements as heavy as something like Crawl. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this like sci-fi kind of mind-bendy alien trap-in film and – I love it for that is so it's so crazy to see how versatile aquatic horror can be when you look at like those three films, just taking sea fever, piranha and crawl, just three completely different ways of treating aquatic horror and how each one succeeds. Now for the second question, I'm going to alter it a little bit, but I want to say that after this point, we are going to give a moment of pause so that anybody who hasn't seen the film can pause, go see the film and then come back. Or if you're somebody who just wants to listen to the conversation, you can listen on straight, but in order to really get into what makes this movie special, why people are watching it, you know, still 10 years later, you definitely have to do a deep dive and you have to get into spoiler territory. So the way that I'm going to rephrase this question is for the uninitiated and as few words as possible, describe the plot of Piranha. (laughs) Okay. So least amount of words possible, staying completely out of spoiler territory. We will just say that Lake Victoria is a very popular destination for spring breakers. And all these co-eds and party-hardy people gather and they want to have this nice vacation out for the week. And amongst them are a assembly of different party goers. As we've mentioned, we have a wet t-shirt uh, contest runner played by uh, Eli Roth, who is not a main character, but it kind of sets the tone of the kind of people you're going to meet on this journey. You have uh, Jerry O'Connell playing basically the Girls Gone Wild dude. Uh, It's called Wild Wild Girls now. And he embarks on a quest to film the most epic spring break porno with two female, uh, you know, models, I guess we will call them for the sake of the nature. And he brings along with him, quote unquote, sand rats who are normies and people who know the area and can take him to the best locations. So from there, we'll just say that something happens that unleashes a giant subterranean cave. It's insane how it happens. Whatever. We get a Jaws throwback. It's funny. But 
this unleashes a horde of piranhas that have survived by cannibalizing one another and they have just become very aggressive and angry and they're like warrior piranhas so yes all the piranhas take to lake victoria and um things happen perfect perfect the last couple times when i said describe the movie trying to get at like you know the heart of the synopsis um right before i was able to cut people off they gave away key like third act things and i'm like no 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 that's not that's not what we want so so thank you very much for helping us keep it at that point now technically before we do pause here we do have to mention as uh jerry o'connell said in many different interviews for legal reasons he's playing a character that's similar to the guy from of joe course, francis yes. or whatever his name is not playing exactly joe francis but uh derrick jones has a lot of similarities <laughs> a lot of similarities but okay so we're gonna take a moment to pause right here all right, that was your chance. There, you, you had at least two, two and a half seconds, you know, to to press pause there. Otherwise, we're gonna get knee deep into that tori- uh, territory for this film because there's so much to talk about here. There's so much that happens, and you even alluded. Are we necessarily gonna say that it is the beer bottle that causes the the quake or whatever underground? Listen, in the universe that Piranha plays in, yes, it is the beer bottle that causes a giant seismic earthquake that unleashes <laughs> a subterranean species of Piranha. So, yeah, it's all Richard Dreyfus's fault. Goddamn Richard Dreyfus! That's why he hasn't shown up in many movies the last couple of years. Because he was eaten by piranhas. Now, technically, this film has a, a special place and of movies that we have talked about in the last couple of months on the show because the writers of the film uh, need to get both of them. P, uh, Peter Goldfinger... And uh, Josh Stolberg uh, also wrote Sorority Row. And we had Trace Thurman on talking about Sorority Row just a couple months ago. So here's these writers coming back again, once again, dealing with a horror movie where the the comedy is definitely at the forefront. Yeah. And I mean, Stolberg's been doing this stuff for a little while. I mean, even having, you know, Jigsaw. Even going, they did Piranha 3 Double D, and these are writers who know horror, who like playing with it. But they understood the concept that they had in Piranha. They understood the fact that, listen, we're going to make a summer horror film, and we're going to make it in a way that plays to that exact kind of crowd. I mean, this is made for midnight lovers. This is made for horror fans that want the event aspect. They want to be entertained. And more than that, they wanted to make summer box office numbers. So, yeah, we want to get as many uh, hot looking young bods in swimsuits <laughs> as possible. We want to be able to play that demographic up. But I will say one thing uh, on a rewatch. There are definitely some characters who are. Yes, they are, quote unquote, problematic. They they are the male characters who treat the females so horribly. But Piranha also understands how to handle those characters. Yes. And it understands that these are not good people. They were never good people. And we're going to show you what we don't, what we do to not good people. So and, I really like it for that. I like, I like that kind of aspect. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what's really interesting about the movie is the fact that, you know, it's kind of split down the middle when you're following, um, you know, both the, the partiers and then Jerry O'Connell um, and the sheriff's son, as well as Elizabeth Shue and, and all them who are on their story. And, and she and Adam Scott are, you know, in the more serious side of the story. And then you have the one that's crazy and you keep on having the spring breakers. And while it does show you uh, the, 
you know, the elements of spring bake that most people have in their mind and, and revel in, but also annoy everybody. It then, you know, says that, oh, we're not really fans of this either. We think these people are terrible and here's what we're going to do to them. Yeah, we're, we're going to have them slaughtered on camera mercilessly and with some really goddamn good practical effects. Oh, it's so it's so good. Now, did you read much about the making of this film, like uh, the history of how it came to be? Um, not the history as much as I mean, I've gone through all the uh, DVD and Blu-ray extras where like, you know, watching Nicotero's work and watching all these guys take over Lake Havasu in real life yeah. and turn it into the uh, death pool that they create. <laughs> so but no, I don't I don't know much about the conceptual uh, conceptualization, actually. The um, the two writers had written it basically um, years ago just to be kind of a, a, a like the the story was similar but it wasn't directly with with piranhas but it was you know of having some fish in in the aquatic horror basically and they thought oh this would be an interesting kind of reinvention of piranha and basically you know tried to take it to a studio and at the time you know they wanted to 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 have mr a be the director of it but he'd only done uh switchblade romance at the time uh high tension for people who go off that high tension if you're one of the other people as well um, and he wasn't, he hadn't really done enough, so they weren't sure about him. So they went and they offered it to Chuck Russell, which is part of the reason why I mentioned the blob earlier, because they took it to him and he wanted it to be, uh, more serious. And he went back to John Sayles' original script, um, for Piranha to kind of, uh, wanted it to be like an underwater, uh, horror thriller type story. And while they really liked the script that he was kind of working on and, and tweaking the elements that the other guys had written, the budget kept on being over what they wanted it to be. Now at that time they were saying it was around 22 to 24 and they thought that was too much, but that was originally like back in around 2002, 2003, he ended up leaving the project and after the success that uh, that was uh, the Hills Have Eyes remake, they ended up bringing Mr. A back on and saying, hey, we want you to do this. So he ended up being getting to direct the movie that they originally wanted him uh, to do. And the weird thing is, is at some point in all of this, uh, Aaron Kruger ends up doing um, uncredited rewrites on the film. Okay, I I can understand that. Yeah, because I I, I imagine a world in which Piranha is played more serious and it doesn't lean into these tropes and it doesn't lean into the severed dick floating on the camera and things (laughs) things of that nature. But that's also what I love about Piranha. And it's those little bits that go above and beyond. And again, I'll keep saying that because that's what draws me to a film like Piranha. It, It doesn't take itself serious. It goes to a level that you want it to not even that you're expecting it. I keep saying that piranha to me is one of the best examples of how to do a third act payoff. Uh It's just bar none. It's unparalleled how much they dive into the, Oh yeah, you want to see the feeding frenzy. We're going to do it. We're not going to shortchange you. And that's just so crucial to the success of a film like this. And if it's more serious, I I don't know if you get any of that. I mean, just like you said, it, it was looking at a different script and it was looking at a different kind of story, but I don't know if I want that one. I, I want this piranha. I want this horror comedy version that is just in your face and aggressive and doesn't care. So so you definitely say for our, our third question we have is you definitely agree that it's the the blood and the comedy that's helped it stay relevant for the past 10 years. 
I do. I, and I just think we don't have a lot of other films like this because I think of things that came out around this era of the aquatic horror level. And it's things like Shark Night 3D. And, <laughs> you know, that's like, a you know, they go PG-13 uh, or they or they if they were R, they don't go as hard into the R because they're trying to make it even more marketable. Piranha is a rare film that didn't play to that PG-13 audience and said, we're going to revel in the gore. We're going to give the fans of horror what they want. And that, I think is why it's remained so successful and in our minds over the years because we actually got a what we'll call a big budget mainstream aquatic horror film that didn't hold back and it kept the (laughs) horror fans in their mind and not just the marketability like something like the meg which i actually enjoyed but the meg pulled all its punches the meg didn't go into that really full force underwater terror that it could have and and really get nasty with it because it opted to be the more PG-13 friendly version of it and just to, to get into theaters and get butts in seats. Piranha was like, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want. Well, which is great because the the last episode that I recorded was with uh, Stephanie Crawford talking about um, Bride of Reanimator. Oh. And we there was a point where we both kind of were talking about how it's really hard in the past you know, 10 or 20 years to nail down a whole bunch of really good horror comedies. And that's because you kind of reach a point where Piranha 3D being one of the outliers, which I, there's a whole bunch that you can group together, but it's not as big as people would necessarily think because, and I think what makes this one work is the appreciation for the subject and the appreciation for the horror genre, because I know that you've seen plenty and I have too, where the comedy element comes off as people who are trying too hard to be funny and the comedy ends up whiffing. And when you whiff on that element, you can still be good on the horror side, but it kind of brings down your product as a whole. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are some things that on a rewatch whiff a little bit more than not uh, on the comedy level. I will say hundred percent. This is a balanced horror comedy. Like another reason why it succeeds in what you were just talking about. It's hard these days to have a horror comedy that either forgets the comedy aspect or it goes full too hard into the comedy and all of a sudden like the horror aspects are forgotten. Piranha balances that. Piranha does all of that. But a few of the jokes, it, it it's simpleton in the sense that it really is just spring break humor. It's frat dudes yeah. and sorority girls and a lot of the humor is revolving around either inebriation or it's revolved around nudity in some way. It's it's going for low hanging fruit, and I, I can't <laughs> argue that it's hanging very low, and it's hanging right near the water. But still, it's there. And once again, the ability to sell, the ability to know exactly what it wants to be, and say, "Hey, we're gonna take these low hanging fruits. We're gonna do what's right there. We're we're gonna keep picking from that tree because it's gonna work." And because we're just going to have damn fun with it. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're, we're just trying to have a good time and make a movie about piranhas taking over a lake at spring break. And that's what permeates. That's what stays through. They're not trying to go above and beyond in the way that would not serve the film correctly. Storytelling or those kind of aspects. The only, t- the only way they went above and beyond with it was with the practical effects, which is where they needed to go above and beyond. Now, th- that definitely brings us to the next question, which is, is there a signature scene or a couple moments that that stays with you? Now you already mentioned one with the uh, the floating penis, of course. 
course um, which that stays in everybody's mind just his legs still twitching and everything but are, what are other ones that stand out for you that's i mean it's all going to be gore related i can tell you it's all going to be practical that's effects fine. related for me that's fine. <laughs> um but the scenes i, I just rewatched it right now to stay fresh and what still sticks in my mind i mean number one the opening the richard dreyfus scene because you get the direct <laughs> jaws homage mm-hmm. but you also get the opening that is brutal. I mean, he oh, gets God. knocked in the water and Richard Trifus gets ripped apart, like absolutely savage by these things. And it's the mix of CGI and practical. And within the first few minutes, we already know what to expect. We are mm-hmm. sold completely on the fact that the water is completely turned to blood red. This body is now just a husk of what it was and it's completely chewed to shit. And then you get that final right before the credits, I believe, when Richard Dreyfus's hand just pops from the water yeah. and it's just his bony chewed off fingers and it just does the, you know, he's reaching for help, but then it just kind of limps over and it's just such a killer way to start that film because then you just slam cut right into the spring breakers and you're like, oh yeah, they are all so <laughs> screwed. But so, I mean, that stands out to me. Definitely the entire Jerry O'Connell scene where his character who basically gets one of the girls killed and yes, knocks her over the boat with him because he doesn't want to die alone. Yeah. gets pulled up by uh, Kelly Brooks, Danny character, who is the other performer on the wild, wild girl set. <laughs> and she is just in awe and shock and horror of Jerry O'Connell, who is now missing all the flesh from the bottom half of his body. <laughs> and again, you see this crap in full view. They, it's not CGI. They created no. this fake half body and then you just get Jerry O'Connell going, my penis. He took my penis. <laughs> he took my penis. <laughs> and it's so stupid. And it's a joke that still makes me laugh over and over in its stupidity. But you get you get the visual impact tied with that. It's, it's one of the perfect moments in Piranha. Uh, just a few more really quickly off the top of my head. And I won't really go in depth with them. But you get the shot right before there where Jerry O'Connell is underwater with, I believe, Riley Steele is the actress's name. Uh-huh. And she is being torn up by the piranhas <laughs> and you kind of see her like she's holding something in her mouth and Jerry O'Connell's just kind of watching. And all of a sudden, one of the CGI piranhas just Chelsea grin wide open, pops her mouth open and just swims right out in like a cloud of blood and gore. And Jerry O'Connell underwater is just like it cuts back to him and he's just looking at the camera. And he's just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> that realization is great. The gore bits on the on the lake itself when everything's going down, the Eli Roth head explosion, <laughs> the girl that gets cut in half, Ving Rames going down with the ship, just grabbing a propeller and still, saving everyone else. Yeah, it's still but yelling I, everybody, just get to shore, just get to shore. And he is just as the piranhas are circling him and he's like, nah, this is how I go out. And he just puts the propeller in the water and just bits of chunk and scale and all this piranha bits start flying at the camera. Oh, God, yeah. I had too many fond memories of that film, and they, they are all <laughs> grotesque. Um, two moments that stood out to me on the rewatch was, one, uh, being really weirdly excited when Adam Scott decides that he's going to, when he, he jumps on the pole that's on the stage and then hops on the jet ski, asks for the shotgun, and just rides off to start saving people and shooting piranhas. Like, it's such a weird image that I'm like, Okay, Adam Scott, I'm I'm on board with you doing this. A hundred percent. That is such an amazing sequence of events, especially involving Adam Scott as the nerdy scientist. Yes. Uh, really quickly, too, another great Adam Scott moment. 
when he tries to save one of the divers in the initial outbreak, we'll say, and when they uh, piranhas escape and they discover the cave, and he's swimming back up with this clearly, clearly deceased corpse. <laughs> There's nothing left, but he just throws it on. He's like, oh, help her out, help her out. And he just looks at it. He's like, oh, fuck. Like, this is completely, oh, right. There's nothing left of this human. Um, and the other one that I really liked, liked was uh, was how you have the mass chaos and confusion and probably the worst thing that happens on the lake is goddamn Todd, who's in the Fucking speedboat, Todd. just yelling at people to get out of the way and killing them with the speedboat and then ripping off that woman's scalp and part of her face because her head's in like, he's there. He could try to help any of these people or just not have the speedboat. But instead, he kills probably like 15 to 20 people himself absolutely murders them and todd is one of the quintessential douche bro asshole characters that i was talking about before where you're like i hate this character oh right he's <laughs> gonna get eviscerated although correct me if i'm wrong when they do one of the final shots of uh people cowering on the shore like they've already they've escaped quote unquote but they're covered yeah. in bites and like completely wounded is todd one of the last people we see i, I thought I, so I, I thought that i, I saw okay. him yeah, yeah. i wish he I, died yeah, I'm pretty sure that he gets knocked off the speedboat, but is one of the people who's just like has chunks out of their back. That's like yeah. magically those 15 people who decided we're just going to climb onto this uh, speedboat are are the ones that survive. Like the ones who definitely should have died right. magically live. Yeah, I, I hated Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Todd. Todd's the worst. I mean, that's what we can say. But again, I, we have to go back and talk about, I think, Jerry O'Connell for a minute uh, because I feel like. In general, lots of people don't talk about him enough. And that uh, what I wrote is that uh, celebrating this movie's 10 year anniversary is celebrating 10 years of us not talking about how great and ridiculous Jerry O'Connell is willing to be in any movie. I mean, he was just in Satanic Panic the la you know last year, and he's got, I think, probably one of my favorite bits of the movie, and he's only in it for like five minutes, but he's still Jerry O'Connell saying, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. Just tell me. I'll be over the top. I'll be ridiculous. What do you want me to do? And in this movie, the answer was do a lot of drugs, yell at a bunch of women's, be really misogynistic and really shitty, and then get your dick eaten off and be used as a human sacrifice. But also have a weird level of insecurity the moment that uh, the sheriff's son mentions that he's the, the sheriff's son. He wipes his nose and he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's go. Let's go save those kids. No, absolutely. Everything's well, fine. Let's, let, let, let's go get them. I mean, he he turns back two seconds later, but he still has that moment where he's like, oh, I am a really, really weak willed individual. They try that little character note and then they realize, oh, wait, but it's way more fun if we just keep him the asshole. And then, yeah, they go, they launch right back into him, like basically being OK with just leaving everyone to die and all that stuff. But I agree. I mean, I will say pretty much up and down the cast list. Piranha is benefited by a ton of really effective and professional character actors. Mm -hmm. And I say that because they all launch into their roles with specific intents and they do very well. Whether it, it is Riley Steele playing the wild, wild girl who is the stereotype <laughs> versus Kelly Brook playing the more I'm just doing this to make some money. I, like yeah. I, I'm an independent woman kind of character. And I kind of like the way it plays Kelly Brook's character and Riley Steele's. They're, they're both not the ditzes. They're not played for what you would expect a quote unquote girls gone wild satire would be. They actually yeah. make them real characters. They make them real humans. And 
I'm not saying they make Jerry O'Connell's character, uh, Derek Jones, a real human, but the minute <laughs> he shows up, one of my favorite lines is when uh, it's the beginning and we meet him for the first time and he's talking to Steve McQueen's Jake Forrester, who is the sand rat we alluded to before. Yep. He's the local that Derek hires to show them around. And once again, like just the way Derek talks or the way, sorry, the way Jerry O'Connell talks as Derek it's very quick. It's very quote unquote witty. He won't shut the hell up and he's a salesman. I mean, he's a straight yeah. Hollywood sleazebag salesman. And basically Jake Forrester's little, uh, little sister quips at him saying like, you talk funny. And he just doesn't even skip a beat. He looks back. Yeah, well you're short. And it's just like, it's such <laughs> a stupid comeback, but that just so encapsulates who he is. He's just not thinking and just firing off whatever comes into his head. And that is the rest of the film. And also, we have to call out uh, Paul Shear. Oh, Paul Shear, just just be in the background. Just cameraman Andrew, he's just trying to trying to support, trying to have a job, and he just keeps getting <laughs> yelled at by Jerry O'Connell. But yeah, once again, his dialogue is so, you know, it's hard hard to take at times because he's just such a shitty human being. Yeah. But then he fits in the world of Piranha because you again know he's going to get dealt with and you know that everything he's doing is to make you hate him. He's one of the few characters that effectively wants you to hate him. And that's what actually benefits O'Connell's performance. I think that actually he feeds off of. He feeds off the fact that I hate this character, <laughs> that I'm going to play him with such hatred that he's going to be amazing. And, but it's it's fun, but it's fun to the point where it, it it makes you forget about some of the other characters in the movie. Like Elizabeth Shue is in this movie, and she's getting some some action sequences, but she's almost you know kind of overshowered by you know the the screen time that Jerry O'Connell has, and and you even have poor poor Dina Meyer in and not a very large section of the movie, but she's in the movie too, and you're like you've got all these people that are in the film. You've got Christopher Lloyd, you know, who has his two scenes where he's completely over the top. Um, but there's just so many people that are in this film and that it, it's a mix of both the ridiculous spring break people. And then you, you have, you know, the character actors who are like, I'm just going to have fun for a little bit. Yeah. And I think the, the reason for this and the, why it gets away with it is because if you were to spend more time with a character like Christopher Lloyd, we would not be on the lake. If no. you were to spend more time with Elizabeth Shue doing procedural work, then we're robbed of the horror elements. We're robbed of those kind of elements. So it's a balancing act. It's a lot of people that we know and actors we love in a movie that's primarily about the carnage and gore. And that's primarily a showcase for Greg Nicotero's work and the special effects. So where I totally agree with you, yeah, I, I like Elizabeth Shue in this role. She's strong. She takes control and – you know, she plays the mom slash cop who's just trying to keep everyone alive, but also is like, my family comes first. Awesome. It's great. Agree. Like, you almost forget she's in the film at times because you're spending the, most of the time with her son, uh, you know, played by Steve McQueen and his little pervy excursion. That <laughs> is He's just trying to have a good time at spring break and finally live it out and hook up with the girl of his dreams who is finally home. And he's like, yeah, so... I, I get it. I understand it. And I kind of think if you did give those characters, the Elizabeth Shoes, the Christopher Lloyds, a little more screen time, then we're talking about one of those horror comedies that doesn't exactly nail that balance. Yeah. 
And, and I mean, it's one of those, something has to fall by the wayside. When you put this many great actors together, it's, it's invariably going to happen. Now, for the next question, I have to open it up a little bit more because this movie's only 10 years old. And it's usually, we say, is there a contemporary film that's reminiscent of this? But because we're talking about aquatic horror and we're talking about Piranha 3D and we've kind of touched about a couple others, what's in the wider scope of uh, aquatic horror can you compare Piranha 3D to? Or what is it that, that keeps it distant and separate from being able to easily think of other ones of that ilk? It's a good question because I think what what makes it so unique is its uniqueness because we don't the piranhas <laughs> aren't really used. You know, if I'm thinking of the wider scope, like you're saying, how how do you compare it to other films and how would you compare it to other aquatic horror films of this nature? I, I don't know if I can. I, I I think of Deep Blue Sea. I mean, I, that kind of fits in line to me mm. because it plays in the same world of or sorry, it plays by the same rules where it's trying to have fun, but even that stays more serious. Yeah. Piranha to me is just I don't I don't think we've seen this level of gore underwater with the with, with the comedy aspects. It it went out. It went all out to do this, but once again, if I'm trying to think of something that to actually compare it to, I would put this next to Deep Blue Sea. It, it does have some good kills and gore bits, so I mm-hmm. it, it's in that world. Uh, the more the better answer actually would be the Deep Blue Sea sequel, but I would <laughs> not tell you to watch that because it's utter crap, and yet it's about the babies and it's about the smaller things. So you actually, it, it's almost like they do piranha aspect stuff in that film. So uh, that's actually a, a funny way to put it, but I, I I hesitate to compare anything else in the aquatic horror world to Piranha, because I mean Shark Night, like I said, pulls its punches. It, it's yeah. not something that I can hold up to. Old school aquatic horror was always more about the big creatures, the Jawses, things of that nature. So you're not really getting a lot of this frantic work. You're getting more like stalk and kill things. Yeah, I I don't know if I can really relate it to a contemporary. I'm actually a little stumped by this question. Well, I I, but I think that goes back to what we were talking about about being able to do comedy horror, you know, successfully because you can easily look at, as we mentioned earlier, you know, Sci-Fi Channel or movies that that might be in in that, you know, Sharknado in those films. You know, they've got their fans, but it's a completely different beast. When you throw in the more ridiculous ones, like three, four. Uh, five-headed shark attack. They're they're completely different beasts that are trying to to push that comedy element, not necessarily in the best vein. So I think that's what helps make make this one stand out is that it shows having that balance and having it right. And so when other people try to make films that have those elements, they're either one side or the other, or they're failing at both sides. Right, and that's a great point, because I didn't really want to go to those sci-fi examples. Like, I purposely wasn't saying, like, (laughs) mega octopus versus whatever, because it's not on this level. They're trying to do things of this nature, but they'll never achieve what Piranha did, because they aren't taking the technical aspects of it that seriously. They're not taking the aspects that an indie film takes for granted at times where, Oh, if we just have a crazy monster, everyone will watch this and not worry about it. Sure. When you put it on sci-fi network, of course you can play those games cause you're giving it zero budget and it's just never going to be a piranha. Um, and then if you think about movies, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically like 
the aquatic horror we've been getting because I love 47 meters down. I love the shallows. Some really good shark work, but yeah. those aren't films driven by gore. Those aren't films driven by action. I feel like aquatic horror so many times is about the suspense. It's about, you know, even underwater recently. It's about I'm under underwater. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm in a new world that I cannot control as a human. And the tension is not only because if my swimsuit breaks or something of that nature, I am dead. There is also a large beast somewhere in these reaches. I don't know where it is. I don't know when it's going to come. And that's where the horror of those films comes from. That's where aquatic horror usually goes to. Piranha's like, yeah, them, them little fishies are everywhere. Like, you're screwed. Like, you're <laughs> just going to get eaten no matter what. And that's where it gets its it, – that's the punch. That's the punch of Piranha. And that's why they get away with so many deaths and kills and the over-the-top overtness. It just happens so quick and you can't help it. But it's also this just typhoon hurricane of craziness. Now, it, it doesn't – it might not have water, but I wondered if this, I mean, it technically has water, not the way we're thinking about it, but I wanted to ask you, would you consider something like The Pool an aquatic horror film? <laughs> That's a very good question. The Pool, for those who don't know, is is a film that we saw at Fantastic Fest, and it is now available on Midnight Something. I'm forgetting what the distributor Midnight Pulp, is. I think. Yes, Midnight yeah. Pulp. You can uh, VOD it there. And... It's an it's a person who is stuck in a drained Olympic sized swimming pool. So right there, I don't know. Just because it's got it an rains, alligator. it do, it does rain in it. It does rain in it. That's true. And the pool was filled at some time, <laughs> but the person does get trapped in this pool with an alligator, I believe. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's this movie, and I I don't I hesitate to call the pool aquatic horror. But then once again, that's the same kind of aquatic horror I've been talking about. It's a, the suspense and it's not about, you know, survival in the sense of, oh, crap, I have to get out of the water right now with 30,000 other people because I'm going to die. It's about one yeah. man versus one beast. And actually, I will throw one film out to okay. to give you a little bit of a again, it's not the same. It'll never be the same as Piranha. No, but the movie Bait. Okay. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't seen it, but I know of it. Okay. Yep. Pretty much a – let me just read the synopsis very quickly. A, <laughs> okay. freak, a freak tsunami traps shoppers at a coastal Australian supermarket inside the building along with a 12-foot great white shark. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So you get a cast of characters who are crazy because there are criminals in there. There are shopgoers. There are workers, things of this nature. They find a way to make it very diverse. And you also get a film – that rely, not relies on, but it has more fun with the gore. It has more fun with the kills. And it's a little less about the stalk and it's more about the action. Okay. So if you're looking for a film that is just another really fun summer horror film that deals with underwater, I'm giving it to bait. Okay, I'll, I'll go for that. The one that I've always wanted to check out, I know that there's no comedy in it really, but I've been curious is, I think it's called 12 Feet. Am I getting okay. that right? It's the one where people are in a... I believe it's an, an Olympic-sized swimming pool that does have water in it, but um, they're, they're swimming in it, and it has a cover that comes oh, on top of it when it closes. Deep. Yes, 12 yes, feet 12 deep. Feet deep. Yeah. I have not seen this yet. Sorry. Uh, I, I was curious about it. I've wanted to see it for a while, but I haven't talked to anybody 
who's seen it because it, it it's got an interesting concept. So when it comes to aquatic horror, I'm always interested in something that that's different and that's unique. And I think that's what makes Piranha 3D great is because you don't really have a lot that are like that. And I think that's what makes aquatic horror when it's done right, really good is because you can easily think of something that's original or unique within that genre. And that's what will grab, you know, grab people and gravitate towards it as opposed to being, oh, we've got just another mass killer on the loose. Exactly. And I mean, speaking specifically to 12 feet deep, just because you have me looking at it right now, like <laughs> I don't do well, like drowning and claustrophobia are like two things that are like, yeah, I want to avoid those as much as possible. Like that makes that that messes my day up. So the fact of like just thinking about watching 12 feet deep, I'm like, oh, oh, no, that's fine. That's OK. OK, we'll we'll switch it back and we'll say swim fan just to throw you completely. Off. <laughs> I like that better. But yes, I mean. <laughs> Again, the individuality of Piranha, just to keep hammering this home, and I know we keep talking about it, but there's there's no way to avoid it at this point. We keep talking about Piranha and the way that it's playing in a world that is not really played in that often. And if it is, it's handled differently. I, Piranha and Piranha 3 Double D are it's, it's their own beast. And that's what I was going to bring up before we get to the last question, is that, of course... Two years later, because of the amount of money that this movie made, there had to be a sequel. And so you did have Piranha 3 Double D that came out. I actually haven't seen that one, so but I do know that it's not necessarily as well uh, received as the first one was. What did you think of the sequel? Um, It's not as well received because it's just not as effective. It, this <laughs> is one of those little bit too much of the comedy little not as much about the uh horror elements and the comedy that is in there i mean i love patrick melton and marcus dunstan who did write the film mm -hmm. but this is not one of their better efforts when it comes to that and the reteaming with director uh, john gulliger who is basically you know they started by making feast together that project yep. remake movie that is very near and dear to my heart so i know what they're capable of and i know what they're able to do and man you had the concept of piranhas in a water park. You had it. It was right there. It's it's insane. It's insane, but it fits in the piranha world. It did not work as well as they had hoped. There's a lot of little bits in there that are kind of funny. There is a decapitation scene that works. You got your David Hasselhoff. But once again, plays the comedy a little bit too much, and the jokes don't land as much as they do in Piranha. And it really just goes sla uh, slapstick over everything. So that's where it lost me, at least. <laughs> now, the final question I think is going to be very, very easy for you. And that's having rewatched the film again recently. Is it still worthy of the reverence that, you know, people like us are holding towards it? Or do you feel like a little bit of the shine is slowly getting chipped away at? I want to say I've seen this movie at least like 10 times and I don't think that's an exaggeration. And no, on my, on my 10th screening, this did not lose any of its sheen. It did not lose any of its cool. It's calm. It's collectedness. If you want to call it, it is just mean. It is fantastic. Practical effects. It is a fun, fun, fun movie. It's everything I want in a movie titled Piranha set at spring break. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's. I wasn't sure what I was going to think upon rewatching it because certain movies, you, when you haven't seen them for a long period of time, and they're kind of in that uh, horror region that maybe not everybody champions as much, especially when you're looking at ten years, that you kind of remember some of the negative parts. And when I put it on and had the opening scene, I was like, 
oh, I remember this being lots of fun. And then as it kept on going, I'm like, I'm remembering how much fun and how much gore there is in this movie and, and having one of those moments where it's like, wait, why aren't we why aren't we talking about this more? Why aren't more people being like 10 year anniversary of Piranha? Yeah, I think it's because it's easy to stereotype it. I, I exactly what you just said. I put the film on and I remembered how much fun I had with it. And I remembered all the times I showed it to new people and they loved it, too. But like the first opening scene, it's very just stereotypical of itself. Mm-hmm. You get the spring break atmosphere with just some shirtless dudes partying on boats and there's kegs and ever, no one's respecting the lake. No one's abiding by the law. Yes, you get tops off girls immediately because, yes, that's the movie we're going to make. But then as it keeps going, it, it justifies all of that stuff. It justifies why it's doing this and it just becomes a caricature of itself. And that's why I think maybe – People aren't talking about it as much because maybe they avoided it because the first few minutes are when they're like, screw it. Or they saw the trailer and like, oh, it's just gonna be another dumb, you know, teens on a freaking lake getting eaten movie. And man, it's just not it. It, It's this movie should be talked about frequently and loved and just lauded with everything. Well, people definitely have time, so I think that they should put it on their list. But uh, the fa- the final side question that I want to ask is since we're this is going to be coming out at the beginning of April, um, we're still definitely people are going to be, you know, stuck at home and some cities probably longer than others. We don't know what's going to happen. We do know that, as I mentioned at the beginning, that movies that were going to be coming out in July are being pushed back to 2021. So people are going to be constantly looking for for entertainment and not everybody wants to turn on tiger king or whatever that was was called and everyone wants to search for something new so is there any you know like choose three films it it doesn't have to be new it can be something old it could be something that we know is coming out in a couple months on vod um but but three suggestions of movies that you want people to to give a chance to since they have free time yeah no that's actually a great question and i actually (laughs) randomly tweeted about this in any case, a few nights ago, and as I'm pulling the tweet up so I can get an immediate list, um, I'm going to go with like VOD. Like, can we just do streaming? Like, does it have to be uh, free to rent or it, it can it can be anything, anything cool. you want. I mean, let's put it this way. As I said in the last episode that I did, if people are willing to pay twenty dollars to see Bloodshot, then they'd probably be willing to pay five dollars for something that's infinitely better. Yeah, more like blood shit. Yeah, was... not, uh, <laughs> let's not. Let's not talk about. Oh, sorry, that's not that. Yeah, that's not that. High. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So here it is. So three uh, little movies I suggest that people check out now that they have so much time. So number one, I want to call out Jeremy Gardner's After Midnight. It yeah. came out this year. It is such a wonderful film about. It's it's a romantic comedy of sorts. I'll call it that has a creature feature twist. And a large sum of the film is Jeremy Gardner by himself mm-hmm. dealing with the fact that his uh, lover has left him basically to stew in Florida by himself in this home that he's inherited from family. And the whole thing is he wanted to stay home, live the home life and kind of hunker down. And she is the freedom, the lost soul that wants to go to the city and, you know, go try and experience things. So yeah. it's Jeremy Gardner's character basically coming to terms with his life and it's coming to yeah. terms with the fact that the woman he loves is out experiencing things and his stubbornness is the only reason he's not there. And it's beautiful. Honestly, it's a very beautiful film and it's something that, you know, 
romance and horror is not that easy to pull off at all times. And maybe it helped the fact that uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moore had helped produce it on their mm-hmm. new uh, Rustic Films banner. And they have nailed that art form in spring. But this is Gardner's baby. This is Gardner's passion project from start to finish. And the passion is what comes through. And that's what makes it a phenomenal watch to me. So I, I completely agree with that. And it's also got Bria Grant, of course, it being... Yep as the the girlfriend who I had to give a special shout out to her because she was just the uh, the main co-star in my friend uh, Jill's film that she made, uh, Jill Gavargazian, who she's in, you know, uh, post-editing her film. And so I had to give a shout out to somebody, you know, so that they can stay on when her movie gets out and be like, oh, yeah, I saw this movie that this guy suggested. But I, Gardner's film is great. The only thing that I would suggest to people is watch it in the afternoon. Um or early evening that it because it is a film that you want to sit with and you want to go on the journey with him to not have it be like, Hey, it's 10 PM. I know we've got nothing going on tomorrow. I'll put it on because it, it does have, you know, long stretches that you want to, you know, to, to fully stay awake and give your full attention to. Yeah. You want to live with this movie and pay attention to it. And you, exactly. you want to experience it with the characters. It's not a, like I'm falling asleep. What should I put on to keep me awake? A hundred percent. But yeah, so that was After Midnight. Uh, second one I'm going to go into immediately is Swallow, which is available on VOD as of now. Also a release of this year. Absolutely. I hear your clapping, so you must agree with me. <laughs> yes. Um, the easy way to put it is Haley Bennett plays a woman who is in a relationship and, you know, she's dealing with it in her own way. She's being controlled. She might be not as happy as she wants to be, but she's doing what people think tell her to do in a way she's doing what society has told us is normal and she should be having a happy life she has everything that she can need and she starts to rebel against that by swallowing things it's her little secret it's her way of retaining individuality Mm -hmm. on her own terms and the journey that she goes on i i kind of laugh because i would love people to watch swallow (laughs) right before they watch the invisible man oh yes because i feel like those two films are so tied together Uh i mean they're not don't get me wrong they are not tied together they are not the same character anything of that nature but i feel like those two films played back to back gives you such a clear picture of what both are trying to do but one does the pre and the other does the post. Yeah. So I I think that'd be such a really interesting experiment to actually do and write about. And I think I might pitch that. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. What I uh, kept on telling people when I saw the film, because I saw it at Fantastic Fest and then they had it at uh, Panic Fest here in Kansas City, which it's crazy to think about that like Panic Fest and Sundance were a couple of the only film festivals that happened this year since they took place in January. Oh. Um but I was telling people when it came to Panic Fest was I said, this is a movie that ha- if it had a bigger budget and had a, a bigger push and release uh, that Haley would definitely probably had been, you know, an awards contention for the type of performance that she gives in this movie because it's completely courageous. It's completely fearless. It's completely in her bones and you live every moment with her. A hundred percent. And it's also for those that maybe have heard that description of swallowing things and are thinking it's immediately like a horror film and it gets body horror and gross. It doesn't. 
The grossness comes from what we don't see and what we imagine in our heads. The film itself actually, it cuts away a lot of the time whenever it comes to the ingestion and it cuts away whenever it gets to the quote unquote nasty bits. But Mm -hmm. that almost makes it worse because of the way that Haley is able to get an emotion from us that is more than just or like a yuck. And yeah, so then that brings me to my third pick, which I mean, I've been pimping this as everywhere I can be, whoever I talk to, but I'm still going to give my third pick to the platform because if you haven't seen it yet, it's on Netflix. And if you like movies like Snowpiercer and High Rise and things that are about classism and the social structure and, you know, maybe how the government doesn't have our best interests at all times. uh, Yeah, crazy, right? You should watch the platform because it finds a very unique way to, to to display that. You know, we've seen over and over again these simple explanations of classism and the socialites or like the sophisticates versus the plebeians, things of that nature. Basically, it's just two men in a cell. That's how the film starts. And a platform with food goes down a tower, we'll call it, of mm-hmm. cells. So every cell, every level is a cell. The food goes downward. And if people just took what they needed, everyone could eat. Do people take what they need? No, because we are trash beings and we deserve to be (laughs) eradicated. So that is what this is an experiment in. And it's very much an experimental film. And it's suggesting things and saying things out loud and putting it right in your face. And also, I'm a big food guy. So if you're able to take food and make it horrifying, you have won me over. I I completely agree with that. Uh, if I were to to give the little, uh, if this then that type thing, I would say that if you stuck uh, the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, uh, cube, and then um, Snowpiercer into a blender, that th- the platform is basically what you get. Yeah, it just looks a little more delicious than that would look in a blender. <laughs> the panna cotta is the message. Oh God. We won't, yeah, we won't even get into that. All I have to say about the film is obvio. There you go. Yep. 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 That's all we yep. have to say. It, it's, it's on Netflix, so it's really easy to watch. Um, hopefully, with any luck, the next couple weeks, the platform will constantly, constantly be in the number whatever in of the top 10. In it, already, it already dropped out. I, I, oh. I went on Netflix and it already dropped out. And I was like, oh, man, come on. Stay in there. I, ho- I hope everyone's watching it. You've watched The Office plenty of times. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I say that as my wife and I have been doing a rewatch of The Office, but I we've been making sure to watch other things, too. So. Man, I'm on my like third rewatch of Letterkenny just because I need happiness <laughs> in my life right now. I just need something that makes me happy. Uh yeah, that that makes me sad because I just realized, oh, that's right. Letterkenny was originally supposed to be coming through town in April and won't be coming through Kansas City. I w- had tickets to the April in Los Angeles that I no longer have tickets for. And I am a sad boy. Everybody needs a puppers right now. Uh, goddamn puppers. Get this guy. <laughs> get this guy. Goddamn puppers. OK, Matt, let everybody know where they can easily find you out on social media. You can find me at Donato Bomb, D-O-N-A-T-O-B-O-M-B, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And these are the places that you will find all my work as well. There you go. That's as simple as that. And you can find me on Twitter at Yo Adrian Torres. The handle for the podcast is at Horrorversary. Just like it sounds, was simple. It wasn't taken. It was the idea I had in my mind. And I said, let's go for it. Now, Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking Piranha 3D with us. 
I want to thank you for allowing me that opportunity to talk Piranha 3D. So I'm not just ranting at my friends for the 7,000th time. And now I get to rant at a bunch of new people. And now anytime you want to go on the rant, you can be like, no, just just listen to the hour podcast. There, there yeah, exactly. Go. It's like, here's a link. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, bye. They're listening to you on your car drive home. Do that. Do that. <laughs> that's if we ever see friends again. So who... we never will. So that's great. Who knows? Well, but thanks so much. Everybody check out everything that Matt is doing because it is completely worth your time. And until next time, especially with everything that's going on right now, stay safe and be